0: You're listening to Ludophilia, I'm Richard Moss. This week's show is in support of a book I'm writing. It's called The Secret History of Mac Gaming, and it's all about the people, ideas, innovations, and communities behind the underappreciated Mac gaming space of the 1980s and 90s, and a bit of the 2000s. It'll be based on over 60 interviews, I'm up to about 65 at the time of recording, and will hopefully provide not only a bunch of fascinating stories about the creativity and craft and dedication that goes into game development, but also will show just how incredibly significant the Mac was to the evolution of video games as a medium. Anyway, please consider making a pledge to the book's crowdfunding campaign at unbound.co.uk slash books slash macgaming. I'll give you a moment to write that down. It's unbound.co.uk slash books slash macgaming. Enjoy the show. In September 1993, a tiny little game development company outside Spokane, Washington released a CD-ROM-based game. It was one of the first to use the technology, which had only just entered the software business in the late 1980s. The brothers who led the project didn't expect it to make much of a mark on anybody. In fact, they just wanted to earn enough that they could go and develop another game. But it was a big deal to them at least, because it was their first attempts to develop a game for adults. A game that would make you think and that would deal with a serious idea in a mature way. Mist turned out to be a big deal for a lot more people than just the brothers Rand and Robin Miller. It got major attention from TV stations and newspapers and culture magazines like Wired. It convinced people that the CD-ROM was a viable, worthwhile technology that they should have in their computers. It sold millions of copies. From 1994 through to 2002, it was the highest selling computer game of all time, The Sims. That delightful virtual... Dole House is what knocked it off top spot. Nowadays, Mist is still right up there, not far outside the top ten. But more important than sales data is the fact that Mist changed video games. Well, almost, or briefly, depending on how you look at it. But I'm not going to go into that here. I'm going to leave the story behind mist for my book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, which again is at unbound.co.uk slash books slash macgaming. And likewise, I'll save for another time, and possibly another place. The tale of how id Software's doom sent the game industry careening down a different path to the one that Mist had set it on just weeks beforehand. Instead, I want to take you back to an earlier time, before Mist. Or doom. Or the reverberations they caused. Back to before the media circus reached Cyan's doors before anybody stumbled into that bizarre deserted island within the pages of a book. Even before, Robin and Rand teamed up to make a simpler, barely-known game that was perhaps more important than either Mist or Doom, back to when there were just the brothers, Rand and Robin, the first and third sons respectively. Among four boys, of the well-traveled, non-denominational preacher, Ron Miller.
1: When I was very young, I, I kind of worshipped Rand.
0: <laughs> That's Robin Miller. He was the artist of the pair when they later formed their company, Cyan Worlds. Rand was programmer.
1: As my older brother, he's seven years older than me. And I can remember being very young and Rand showing me how to draw. Uh, Rand showing me things, basic things like perspective and, you know, reflections and um, how to draw ripples in water. And um, I was just amazed, like, oh, this is a vanishing point. And so this would have been like, I guess I would have been like, eight years old or seven years old. And you know, when you learn that stuff, it's like magical tools of the trade for drawing. And I was learning them from my older brother. That was, you know, I always really looked up to him. And even in music, too, I would go in and sit in his room and um, listen to his record collection. And the, that was sort of, you know, I think like any older, well, like many older brother, younger brother, relationships i just sort of looked up to rand and um he was in some ways a mentor for me
0: rand was also robin's introduction to computers rand developed his own interest in his early teens and i'll let him tell the story
2: i was in um junior high school and i had a uh, kind of a family acquaintance who was in college taking computer courses and he took me to the local university this was in Albuquerque New Mexico he took me there and it was just old uh, giant CRT terminals hooked to an IBM mainframe but we sat down and we logged in and you can imagine junior high kid for the first time actually We heard about computers, but no one had, you know, no kids had access to computers. So it was like this magical experience when we logged into this computer and and he started showing me things.
0: What really got him on board, of course, was the games catalog.
2: I particularly remember he pulled up a game called Lunar Lander. It was not what anyone expects these days it was there was a line on the screen that said basically spit out a few numbers said this is how high you are above the lunar surface this is how fast your spacecraft is dropping right now and this is how much fuel you have left and at the end of the line was a question mark and you could put in how much fuel you wanted to burn and hit return And the next line would spit out with how high you were, how fast you're going, and how much fuel you had left. And your goal was to obviously slow down your spacecraft by the time you got to the surface. And as trivial and remedial as that sounds, I was completely hooked and enamored. It was magic. I had just, I mean, it just completely captured me. Him and he said well you program computers and I said how and, and the language he thought was easiest was BASIC and this particular IBM mainframe and it could be programmed in BASIC so I bought a book at the university there on BASIC and I started programming in uh, basically in order to make games and my first game was uh, I decided I would program tic-tac-toe where the computer would play against you And it was it was a great learning experience, but here's an example of how naive I was. I wrote all the input and output things, you know, where it would print out the little screen of the tic-tac-toe board, and and uh, and so I knew how to do the input and output, but and I knew how to get the players, you know, which play which uh, space the player wanted to play it in, but then the computer had to decide what what its move was going to be, and I was so Naive at the time, I knew lots of basic statements in the computer, but I went to my college uh, acquaintance and I said, so I've got all this done, but I don't know what the statement is that makes the computer think. He laughed and laughed and said, no, 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 that's not the way it works. You You have to account for all the possibilities. And the light went on in my head like, oh. You really are telling the computer everything, every single step to, to, uh, to take. So I went on and, and did finish the program, but it was kind of enlightening at that point. I basically every day after junior high, we lived about or, or the, uh, my school was about a block from the university and I would go over and, for, and spend a couple hours every day at the university computer center stealing a password and using their computer to either play games or write games.
0: Home computers weren't yet a thing at this point, but that started to change as Rand entered college.
2: So when I got into college, they were just starting to have these, you know, tiny little computers that basically didn't do anything or did very little. And I managed to buy one that I had to build myself with, you know, solder the parts on the board and but it did hook to a TV and it recorded programs on cassette tape. And I wrote games for that one as well. I wrote a, um, in high school, I guess I skipped this. I wrote a game called Swarms that was based on a book of the same name. that had come out at the same time as about killer bees attacking North America and you having to, um, decide how to uh, protect North America from this onslaught of Africanized Uh, South American honeybees.
0: He continued learning how to code, mostly through making his own games. And he bought all kinds of low-cost kit computers. In the meantime, he got married and he had kids. And come 1983, word was getting out about Apple Computer's secret project, the Macintosh. Rand heard about it through a relative who worked at a computer store.
2: Toward the end of the year, he brought home this brochure and said Apple's coming out with this new machine. I'd never had an Apple computer even, um, couldn't afford it, I'd had less expensive. But um, I got a job working at a bank, programming at a bank, and you know was making okay money. But when I saw the brochure for the Macintosh... I, it was like, well, I'm, I'm getting this one. I, I want this. So I ended up getting probably the first Mac that they delivered to that
0: store. The Mac was the first mass-market personal computer with a graphical user interface. Before the Mac, personal computers were based around command lines. This means that you had to learn obtuse text commands to type in if you wanted to open a file or app or really do anything. And if you ever used a Commodore 64 or an Apple II or a a PC with DOS on it, you'll know what I mean. But with the Mac, you had something much more intuitive. Files appeared in virtual folders on a virtual desktop. And you used a mouse to point at things. Pressing the mouse button was like tapping on something, it was a gesture. Something you could learn and master within seconds. And I could go on for hours just talking about the Mac's innovations. But for now, I'll add simply that the original Macintosh did one other incredible thing that we completely take for granted today. It let you change font and text formatting and actually see these things on the screen just as they'll be printed on paper. What you see is what you get. Or WYSIWYG, as it would sometimes get called for short. Here's Rand again.
2: I loved the graphics and the fonts and the WYSIWYG. I I always, without knowing that those things were important to me, I, you know, I, when I saw the Mac, I realized just exactly how important they were to me, probably like a lot of people at the time. And so it really kind of uh, got my attention and I plopped a lot of money down on a, on on the Mac when it first came out. And I was mesmerized by making my own fonts and using some of the new tools that were coming out. Um, there were graphical databases that were coming out that I thought were just Super, you know, very intriguing. One of them was called Helix, and I thought, boy, this is a whole new way to look at data. And then spreadsheets, the way those were interpreted on the Mac with the mouse. I mean, there's just a lot going on.
0: Gradually, Rand worked his way through the massive thousand page technical tome inside Macintosh, which went through how the Mac worked, how to program software, why the Mac's designers wanted developers to design the user-facing aspects of their software in a particular way. But while he liked programming and learning how things worked, Rand didn't get any great satisfaction from the esoterics of computing code.
2: Now, there's a lot of people who love digging down into the esoterics of compilers and and C++ and getting down and dirty and... uh, Into uh, typing variables and all that stuff. I, I was, I wanted a quick return on an investment, and I loved, you know, when when things would, when you'd have to tweak things to make them work fast. That was fine, but most of the time, the the you know the speed wasn't as important. I just wanted to get things done.
0: The release of HyperCard in 1987 struck him like a breath of fresh air. HyperCard was phenomenal. It was a tool written by Bill Atkinson, a key member of the Mac team. Uh, he worked on it on the side of his official responsibilities at Apple. Uh, it was, in essence, uh, a programming tool uh, that that made it possible for anybody to make their own software. You didn't need to know how to code because... The only coding that you did was writing sentences. Sentences to instruct the program what to do. The syntax was very, very similar to the English language. And sometimes you didn't even need to, to do that. Sometimes you could just drag and drop buttons around and click on menus and, and that would create your app for you was also the thing that introduced the world to hypertext, which you know now, although you may not realize it. And that little thing at the beginning of every web address, that HTTP, that Hypertext Transfer Protocol, it means that you are accessing a hypertext page just like something that was made in HyperCard. And HyperCard, remember, was from 1987.
2: The way they looked at things, the way they designed that, was so elegant and so efficient that it immediately just said, well, I mean, I can, there's so many things we can do with this.
1: You know, it was a very similar to the web, except it only existed on your own computer. So you had pages, uh, which they called cards, and they had, you had links um, that you could create and you could link to other cards, but it did, you couldn't link to other people's computers or to other you know sites or anything like that. It was just like you would create, in essence, one site. And then the only way you could share that was by putting it on a floppy disk and giving it away. <laughs>
2: So I immediately started doing, you know, what everybody started doing, which was um, simple little databases, um, you know, there was a recipe database for my wife and, a, and a little things for, the, for my kids to play with. Um, but nothing serious. But it wasn't until I bought some, some educational software or some, some children's software for my daughter at the time that i realized that the children's software was kind of taking a back door if if people weren't it felt like like if you could do really if you had a great artist and a great programmer you would do you know real real games. games but if you otherwise you would just kind of be shoved over into children's software nobody was doing like really high quality children's software putting time and effort into it So I saw this need and I wrote my brother a letter and basically said, Hey, there's not, there's a, there's not good children's software on the Macintosh. This program called HyperCard has just come out. I think we could do something with HyperCard that had really nice graphics, hand, hand done graphics because he was an artist. And we could almost build this uh, kind of a book that, that had interactions in it and had, um, uh, it felt something like something that adults would even appreciate, and I had to write him I think twice or three times before I finally got his attention
1: and so i the, the day he sent it to me was um, I put Hypercard in and I started drawing into a picture of the of this manhole. I mean, I don't even know why I drew a picture of a manhole, it had drawing tools built built in, and i I just did and um and then I decided uh, I think I just thought, oh well the hot spot would be you'd click on it and the manhole cover would slide off. And then I made another hot spot of you know, I made a little animation of a vine growing out. You can see the evolution because once the vine grew out, it was a vine that grew up and it was huge, like Jack and the Beanstalk style. And then I didn't want to turn the page. I wanted to just be able to navigate up the vine or I wanted to go down into the manhole. That's what I started doing, is I started creating sort of a navigable world by using the tools there, uh, the very simple tools, and creating sort of this point and click navigable world. I, I just sort of created this, you know, place. And I I improvised my way through this world, just creating one thing after another. And, you know, pretty soon I was creating these little canals in one place and then a forest with stars. And, you know, I just, the craziest things, I was just inventing it as I went through it. And, And that's how the world was born.
0: I love to sleep while standing on one leg.
2: Oh, bother, company again. Well, immediately, you you are enticed to explore instead of turn the page. Nobody sees a hole in the ground leading downward and a vine growing up leading upward. And in the distance, a, a fire hydrant that says, touch me, that you want to turn the page. You want to go see what those things are. And that's what he did. Instead of drawing the next page, he drew a picture that was closer, that showed what was down in the manhole, and a picture that was what was up above on the vine. And it was kind of a stream of consciousness, but it was—it became more of a place instead of a book. Looks like you want to visit my home. Follow me. And he started sending me these images, and I started connecting them and trying to make them work, um, just make them interactive. <laughs> Oh
1: yes, it's you. Well, make yourself comfortable while It didn't occur to me that like, oh, this is kind of different. (laughs) It just seemed like the natural thing to do. (laughs) So then um, I would send it to Rand, things I was creating on these floppy disks. And I, I don't know how many floppy disks it ended up being on from my end. It was probably like 15, um, he would compress it down and get it onto like less discs and add sound and voices. And then we ended up with, with that first product. That's you know, that's where that's where it came from. And then we, we went and we showed it at a a hypercard expo. And we got this crazy reaction, like this really good reaction, which you know we were kind of were not expecting at all. And I think after we got that good reaction, we, we kind of thought to ourselves, why don't we do another one of these? And then we did uh, another one called Cosmic Osmo. And then we continued on for a little while doing doing these children's worlds. There was a lot of things back then that people were publishing for HyperCard and they were mostly just sort of there were no games in HyperCard. But there was things like, you know, en- encyclo- like encyclopedias and uh, um, document- documentary types of things. Um, people were kind of looking, and no one understood what to do with HyperCard. But people felt like this is something new. And it, it was. It was the precursor to the Internet. No one really... Got that, of course. But people were throwing around the idea that okay, someday we're going to have something like this that's going to be connect connect all information. Which I heard things like that, and I just thought this is ridiculous. How is all information going to be connected with something like these cards? It doesn't make sense. How are these links going to connect everything? That doesn't make any sense. And I remember hearing that at that Hyper Expo, the first Hyper Expo where we brought the mantle to. It, it just, like, um, I, I didn't understand that, uh, which is, is so funny to me now. But yeah, we got a publisher very quickly, which was extremely exciting.
2: I think if you had to pick something that my brother and I had done that was revolutionary, and I don't mean, I'm I'm not, I'm trying to, I'm not sure that we did anything revolutionary, but I guess what I'm saying is it wasn't necessarily mist that came much later. That was the thing that really was the new idea it feels like more it was the manhole that was the new idea and of course if you know deja vu and you know Zork and you know the games that came before we obviously built on other people's ideas but that was the thing that felt like in a place like we were building a place not just a game or or a book and so I think Everything we did from that point on evolved that idea. We got better and better at, at our craft. We you know the artwork for um, our next project, Cosmic Osmo, got better. Um, we learned HyperCard better and made things much more interactive. We started doing X commands. Those
0: were external commands, kind of like extensions for HyperCard to make it do things it wasn't originally capable of.
2: So that we could um, make faster responsive interactivities in the games themselves, or even add color to them where necessary. And we got more and more sophisticated in our abilities and evolved from the manhole. But, but sticking with HyperCard because it did it either did or allowed us to do everything we needed to do and do it well in short order.
0: HyperCard also helped them handle the new CD-ROM technology. They initially published The Manhole in 1988 on 5 floppy disks. And they required a hard drive to play the game, which was actually a first in children's software. But a year later, publisher Activision also made the game available for CD-ROM, which was a first not only for kids entertainment, but for video games as a whole. And Cyan's later games, Cosmic Osmo. Splunks, Mist, and Riven all came out on CD as well. Cosmic Osmo and Splunks, by the way, I wholeheartedly recommend if you like playful exploration worlds. There's just so much hidden in them, they're wonderful. And Mist even proved to be one of the killer apps for the CD ROM many of the games, millions of players bought their first CD drive, or CD-ROM equipped computer, so that they could play this game, you know, the game that everyone was talking about. But the manhole, that playful little exploration game, with no goals or endings other than what you defined for yourself, he hello, the manhole started it all. It hinted where interactive storytelling and digital play worlds could go. It paved the way not only for Cyan to develop the more adult-oriented, puzzle-and-exploration-driven adventure mist, but it also paved the way for that entire brave new world of interactivity. Books and films and TV could tell wonderful stories about a make-believe world, or stories within a world, but with the manhole it became clear that there was enormous power in harnessing that innate interactivity of software to put you in a world, and to let you explore it at your own pace, in your own style. Just to play and have fun. Glutophilia is produced by me, Richard Moss with music this week by Kai Engel, Lee Rosevere, Steve Combs, Chris Zabriskie, Boxcat Games, Roll Music, Robin Miller, and some bits of my own. Most of the sound effects you heard also came from the manhole. You can support Ludophilia by donating via PayPal or Patreon, by leaving a review on iTunes, or simply by telling other people to check out the show. It's still a new thing, And my current audience is very small, so do me a favour. Tweet a link. Facebook share a link. Send it to all your friends and followers. Help me grow. This week's story was adapted from interviews for my upcoming book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. To remind you again, I am running a crowdfunding campaign to cover the production and design costs, If you pledge now, you can get a limited edition deluxe hardback with high quality paper and printing and a whole lot of images. You can also get neat rewards like an art print, a custom gift box, a chance to meet me (laughs) if you really want, or a VIP tour of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, otherwise known as The Maid, in Oakland, California. That's a really cool place make your pledge at unbound.co.uk slash books slash macgaming. We'll be sticking with video games for the next episode, then I'll take you into some flesh-and-blood real-life stories of play. By which I mean play that's not based around a screen. Not like gore or violence or anything like that. These stories will be perfectly peaceful. Well, probably. Alright, until next time, see ya.